love music, live sport. Pole Position with Andy Alston and Adam Todd on Rock Sport Radio. Hello and welcome to Pole Position on Rock Sport Radio. It's Andy Alston with you alongside Adam Todd, broadcasting live on DAB Digital Radio across central Scotland on TuneIn and online, talking motorsport from 8 until 9. So on the show this week, will Hamilton be the top man in Japan? Tanak full of smiles after winning in style, and we look at all the thrills in Not Kill. All this and more on Pole Position. Now, Formula One is back this weekend, with the action heading to Japan with five rounds to go in this year's championship. Lewis Hamilton is the driver to beat after winning last time out in Russia, and Adam, Suzuka is a track that, of course, Mercedes have gone well at in this hybrid area. Yes, they're, they're unbeaten in, at Suzuka. Mercedes, they've been very dominant there since the hybrid era, partly because of the high-speed nature of the track. Always a fans and drivers' favourite Suzuka, so really looking forward to this weekend. And as will Mercedes coming off the back of that 1-2 in Russia. But Toto Wolff's been very clear that they were beaten on pace, on pure pace, last time out in Sochi. So they know that it's going to be difficult again to keep Ferrari back because since the summer break, they have been the better team in Formula 1. And if Hamilton does win on Sunday then surely that's the driver's title all wrapped up yeah I mean for me the championship was wrapped up you know after race 7 I think to be honest because I just didn't see Valtteri Bottas challenging Hamilton in that um it's came to fruition, hasn't it? He's Valtteri Bottas. We know that he plays that number two role very well as a championship contender. In my opinion, he's not. And by that stage, we knew that Ferrari just weren't going to mount a championship fight. They'd missed too many opportunities. And it's a shame because we've talked about so many great races since the summer break. Ferrari, Red Bull, Mercedes. You know, what a battle we could have had. Charles Leclerc, Max Verstappen, Lewis Hamilton, a three-way title fight. Sebastian Vettel in there in the mix as well. So let's hope that will carry on into 2020 and we can have you know not just one team and one driver you know winning the world championship because Hamilton's having it too easy in the championship but in the races at least he's getting challenged now. Now Mercedes will be feeling confident going into this one but the weather could be a problem for everyone with a typhoon hitting the country and set to continue into this weekend. So joining us on pole position to talk more about this I'm delighted to welcome back Scott Douglas former friends at the Checkered Flag. Scott there's talk that qualifying could even be put back until Sunday morning. How do you think this is going to affect things? Well, actually, we, we've done it before in the past, haven't we, where we've had awful weather at one of the races. Um, Saturday's been a washout, so they've moved qualifying to a Sunday morning. And actually, it does work out quite well. Um, it shows you that Formula 1 weekends probably could be a lot shorter if they really wanted them to be, because all it is is just a brief you know, um, hour-long session in the morning, and then everyone just gets back out for the racing in the afternoon. The only issue being, if you crash in qualifying, then uh, your mechanics have far less time to repair the car. Um, and it's, uh, the track conditions on Friday will be completely different to that while they are on Sunday. Um, also, from a slightly uh, selfish point of view, here in the UK, with the race getting underway about 6 o'clock on the Sunday, uh, it's going to be pretty tough to get up for qualifying if it's in the morning <laughs> Japan time. And, and Scott, you, you kind of alluded to it there as well, that the fact that Japan is a race that's, that's had a tough time with weather over the years, is this perhaps an opportune moment for us to kind of reflect on when this event lands in the calendar and perhaps move things around a bit? 
It really is. Because, I mean, it's all, this is uh, one of the many races of the Asian swing, as it um, uh, was called a few years ago, when uh, the Formula One calendar leaves Europe and starts going east before heading um, uh, over to Brazil and Abu Dhabi and Mexico um, and the U.S. So it sort of it changes as the years gone by, but the problem is with the European races and weather in Europe being so unpredictable as well. They're keen to have them in the summer months, and it kind of shoves all the other races uh, to the fringes and does make it a lot more difficult. I personally, with where the Suzuka track is situated, is it, it, it's in a unique part of the world. Anyway, I mean, you guys are going to be discussing Knock Hill later on. I mean, talk about microclimates. I thought Knock Hill was bad, but um, uh, Suzuka is something else. It could be great weather elsewhere in Japan, and Suzuka could be absolutely sod. Um, so just because of where it's situated in the country. So I, I think it would probably be best to see it earlier in the year, but I think the teams would really object to it, given the, the moving around they'd have to do and where they'd need to ship their freight to mid-season. Scott, Hamilton and Valtteri Bottas are one to drop of the Drivers' Championship, but it's the battle for third place that I want to get your thoughts on because Charles Leclerc is in that spot just now, but do you think he'll be there come the end of the season? At, at the moment, I probably have to lean towards yes because he's got the momentum with him, uh, despite obviously what happened last time out in Sochi. You've got Red Bull starting to struggle. They really look like they're only up, but they've kind of plateaued now. They've not been on in the last few races. The Ferrari's been the faster car. And with Leclerc currently having the edge on Vettel in qualifying, uh, if the Ferrari continues to use bizarre team orders like last time, then you can probably see him edging it. But uh, don't forget, he's not been in that position much this season. It was Vettel for a, set, um, for a bit, then Verstappen. Vettel was ahead of Leclerc because Leclerc was making mistakes. That crash and qualifying and back, who set him back? Um, obviously, the uh, um, unfortunate uh, breakdown of Bahrain didn't help his cause either. So if he can eliminate the errors, um, which he seems to have done in I think Leclerc probably should do it. Hi, Scott. Adam here. The big talking point at Ferrari in recent races has been, you know, while the performance has been great, they've started winning races again, but it's been the management of their two drivers, Charles Leclerc and Sebastian Vettel. The team just do not seem to be able to control these two at the press conferences in Suzuka. They've said that there's no issue there, but there's clearly an underlying issue there. How did the team go into this weekend managing these two? Because things cannot carry on as they did, because ultimately Russia really made the team look amateurish. They really did, Adam. I mean, you're utterly right. Ferrari somehow managed to find a way of shooting themselves in the foot, even at a time when they've got, you know, an exciting driver pair seems to be getting on and the fastest car. The way they've managed it in a season when they're not challenging for the title, because that's when teammate battles normally start to emerge. You know, the Rosberg-Hamilton um, uh, uh, fight weren't really that bad until they were both going for the title consistently, and then it kicked off. And it's kind of understandable when you're fighting out for the biggest prize in the sport. Fry this season aren't fighting out for the biggest prize in sports. Hamilton's got the driver's title. Mercedes nearly have uh, wrapped up the um, uh, team's title. So they shouldn't be fighting over this. This should be a let the driver's race keep it simple until the end of the season and develop the car. And instead, their bizarre instructions like they put out in Sochi are just causing this tension. We've seen Leclerc blatantly ignore team orders. We've seen Vettel blatantly ignore team orders. It's going to be really hard. If it's going to be hard now, how hard is it going to be next? season of Ferrari at the top, it's just going to become harder and harder for them. 
the thing I'm enjoying most at the moment is Lewis Hamilton uh, using his position as a world champion and rival to just stir up trouble. Um, (laughs) His comments this weekend, you know, um, oh, Leclerc is clearly the number one. Ferrari are trying to push him. It's all, but I mean, I can only see it as him trying to cause trouble and trying to create mischief. And it's fantastic fun to see. But he's probably not far wrong. You know, there's a lot of internal battles happening at Ferrari. If you're a rival, why not? try and make uh, a bit of hay while you can and it would be great viewing Scott wouldn't it Charles Leclerc and Sebastian Vettel if they were fighting for the championship next season are you surprised at the way Charles Leclerc came into this Ferrari team and has defied team orders so early on into his Ferrari career I mean in years gone by not many drivers would be brave enough to even tempt to ignore team orders but Leclerc's done it on more than one occasion this is his first year at the team we know the talent he's got he's won races you know he's beaten Sebastian Vettel in qualifying um, many a times but at the same time you know Formula 1 is a team sport and Leclerc's came into Ferrari and at the end of the day that team is no longer in harmony as it was say with Vettel and Raikkonen Absolutely and it's this problem that we see is that when you have a clear number one and a clear number two there's no battles because there's always a driver who tends to come out on top. He's the one you can stick your resources and your and your um, focus behind, and it, it makes things a lot easier. With two fast, competitive drivers like we've seen, it makes it harder. Leclerc started off so well; he was so obedient. Um, whenever he crashed or made a mistake, he was on the radio immediately um, taking the blame. When um, if Sebastian had a good result, he was the one saying congratulations on the radio. And you thought, actually, do you know what? This guy might have exactly the right attitude Ferrari are looking for. And as the season's gone on, he's realized he's very competitive. He's realized that his value is going up as well. He's just learned to push back a tiny little bit. And when he sees that he might not be getting the best situation, that's what he's going for. You know, my favorite comment from Sochi on the radio was when he said, you know, I don't want to discuss it now, but... And then he had four radio messages where he quite vocally on the radio said, Seb should let me pass. And you think, yeah, you're trying to come across as the reasonable guy here, but you've still got that killer edge of I'm not going to get, you know, beaten here. I'm going to make sure that I come out on top. And to be perfectly honest with you, I think that's what you need to be a world champion. If he was being obedient and letting you know, the team do things that weren't favouring him or letting things like Singapore just wash over him, I think it would probably be a bad sign. The fact that he's actually got that, that steal, I think, probably shows that he's a Formula 1 champion of the future. And at the start of the year when Leclerc was confirmed at Ferrari, I thought that Ferrari would have a really good opportunity to win the Constructors' Championship because I felt they would have two number one drivers, whereas Mercedes, it's very much a number one and number two. But that theory's almost been blown out of the water this year. Now, yes, that's in part because of how dominant Mercedes were at the start. So it was one-twos, and we didn't really get to see how well Valtteri Bottas would do against the likes of the Ferrari and Red Bulls. But do you actually think having a number one and a number two is better for teams in Formula 1 now as opposed to having two number 1 drivers because I have to say I always thought that instead of maybe Ferrari getting a 1-4 because let's be honest Kimi Raikkonen in his past seasons at Ferrari wasn't delivering as as much as what Ferrari probably would have hoped for and they would get more 1-2s as opposed to say 1-3s, 1-4s but that's just not been the case and ultimately they are causing... With the performance that's going on between these two, they're ultimately losing key results because they're too busy fighting amongst themselves and fighting against Mercedes and Red Bull. Exactly, and, and it's 
it is it, it's one of those sort of quandaries, and actually I think it's very much why Valtteri Bottas has kept his drive for next season. It's because he's in second place. You know, if he was in third or fourth, the team could widely look at him and go, well, we're losing out. And although we've won the constructors this year, but in future years, that might cost us. But he's in second. You're right. I mean, mainly just do um, that dominant start Mercedes had. But yeah, it, it shows if you have a clear number one and a clear number two, you keep, uh, you know, it, it, there's no stress, there's less infighting. And I think for a team in general, it is, it, it is easier. I think, though, when it comes to when you start losing points, that's when the issues come. I think Ferrari, they will probably look at their problems this year and look more towards reliability and their slow start. I think if they'd had a faster start, they'd be closer um, to the top of the championship. But they lost points in Bahrain. Vettel's retirement ended up not just costing them um, Vettel's points, but obviously the win for um, Leclerc as well, which was a stroke of bad luck. But you're talking there that... Um, you know, that 18 points um, uh, or more gone down the drain already. Those sort of results are really what they needed to stay in the hunt this year. And I think it's because it's been their ruthless pursuit of pace. And to get on Mercedes' speed has meant that they've had more mechanical failures come in. That's what they really need to sort out. I, I think in the moment it's fine having the driver line up as it is. But, yeah, you've got to keep monitoring these things because before long it will start costing championships. Scott, obviously this is a big race for Honda. And it's fair to say that they go into this one with a chance of fighting near the front for the first time since they made the return to the sport. How important is this race for them this weekend, given, of course, it was the scene of Fernando Alonso's infamous comments when he was driving for McLaren with Honda Power. You know, this, this is a brand that, that takes great pride in doing the best that they can and, and, and they don't take well to, to public outbursts like that. What can we expect from the Red Bull Honda package this weekend? Well, obviously, they took all those engine penalties and uh, part penalties in, in Russia to make sure they had a fresh set for all their drivers for this weekend. That will bode well for them. Uh, there's a slight, their, their biggest issue at the moment is just that Red Bull seems to have fallen behind slightly on development more, whether that's because they're concentrating more on 2021 or next year's car. But they have, unfortunately, just slipped back slightly compared to Ferrari and Mercedes. Mercedes come this weekend with a new upgrade. Ferrari come off the back of three races where they've had the fastest package. So I think, unfortunately, it's going to be slightly tougher than they would have hoped. I think about five, six races ago, they would have been talking about podiums. Now I think they're probably talking about trying to keep up with the big two. Sochi uh, um, uh, uh, wasn't great for them. Obviously, with the engine penalties, the staff was off the pace. Suzuka doesn't really suit their car, which is the real irony is that, uh, unfortunately, their lack of power compared to the other engines and Red Bull chassis being better and the tight stuff around the fast corners tends to mean that this actually might be a bit of a tricky one for them. But I wouldn't be surprised if they were turning up the engines full, you know, not worrying about the longevity of these parts, just but making sure they all came out for one race because, you're right, it just means so much to them in this race. And Scott, just finally, who else will you be looking out for this weekend? Um, well, actually, the, the uh, um, first person I'll be looking out for is on the Friday, um, uh, which will be ya- Yamamoto, um, the uh, Nippon driver that uh, Honda is sticking in the Toro Rosso. Um, Pierre Gasly is getting benched for that practice session. Jensen Button has been his teammate for the last uh, year um, in Japan and speaks from him very highly. So, first of all, I want to see how he gets on. That's going to be fascinating. After that, though, I mean, other than the battle at the top, I think it'll be interesting to see where Renault are going to be this weekend. They're trying to state their claim as the fourth best team and continue their progression, but they've got a big battle on their hands with McLaren, who seems to be coming back at them and uh, um, are rather embarrassingly using the same engine to beat them, which is particularly tough. 
Um, and uh, actually, I think the most interesting story that's still developing is actually um, the one of Williams. Robert Kubica um, retired for no real reason in Sochi, and it's starting to emerge that might have been because Williams didn't have enough spare parts to complete the season. That's really worrying for a team like Williams to be on the verge of not having the parts to have a car you know, that they can race is really, really worrying for them. It's a sign of the, the sad financial state they may be in. They've lost money over the last couple of years because they've finished last in the championship. So it'll be interesting to see how they react this weekend. Scott, always a pleasure. Thanks very much for your time and for joining us here on the show. No worries. Thanks, guys. That's Scott Douglas from our friends at the Checkered Flag there. And stay with us as we talk all things rally up next on Rock Sport Radio. If you're a fan of Scottish Junior football, then Just the Juniors is a must-listen for you here on Rocksport Radio. Nobody brings you more or better coverage of the junior game on radio than Bill Kilgour and John Redmond. Unrivaled knowledge, interviews with the managers, players and people who run junior football in Scotland. Every Friday, 8pm to 9pm, is when you can hear Scotland's flagship junior football show. Make sure you're listening. Just the Juniors, brought to you by Plumbase, the trade's Premier League team. Leave the winter outside with Plumbase's hottest offers in Feel the Heat brochure. Get yours at your local Plumbase branch. Do you hear that? That's your family coming round to your new house for Sunday lunch. Your son opening the door of his first home. Visitors arriving at your guest house. Friends coming over to watch the football. Scottish Building Society offer a range of mortgages, so we can turn this into this. Hello! Scottish Building Society. We've been helping people open doors since 1848. Call us today on 0345 600 4085. Scottish Building Society is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. William, Pamela and Anthony were sold investments by banks and ended up losing money. Luckily, they contacted Goodwin Barrett and were able to claim back a total of £65,500. If you've lost money on an investment sold by a bank or financial advisor, even if you no longer have the investment or the paperwork, Goodwin Barrett could help. Discover how much you could be owed. Text GOOD to 6677. Text GOOD to 6677 now. It's easy to put things off. I'll sort it tomorrow. It'll wait. Well, turns out if you're a man with prostate disease, the sooner you spot it, the better it can often be treated. So if your dad or brother have had prostate cancer or you're having trouble with your waterworks, do something about it. See your GP or visit prostatescotland.org.uk for more information. Prostate Scotland. Pull your finger out. Love music. Live sport. Pole Position with Andy Alston and Adam Todd on Rock Sport Radio. All right, let's talk rally now. And um, we were treated to a cracking Wales Rally GB last weekend. The Toyota Zotanak taking a big step towards winning the driver's title after taking all five points on the power stage as well as the victory last weekend. Now, Tanak might have been the star of the show, but all eyes were on Peter Solberg, who won in WRC2 in what was his last appearance behind the wheel in the WRC. So... Let's recap all the action now, as ever, with rally expert David Halley, who joins us now. David, uh, what a way for Peter to sign off his career. 
excellent, a win in the class and just uh, showed his own class in, in the event, all these young chargers coming at him and the man has the class to be able to, to, to come to the end and, and it was very emotional and uh, Malcolm Wilson and Dave Richards who had both been uh, instrumental in his uh, rallying career were all there to, to welcome him home as well, it was uh, just a, a very nice way to, to finish his uh, driving career in the World Valley Championship as you say And, and a nice passing of the torch as well with his son Ollie in action too Yes, Oliver didn't have the best of weekends, but he's he's about twelve or so. He certainly looks twelve, and <laughs> by by James can he drive? He he can fling that car around, and uh, we saw him at Goodwood. I, I was at Goodwood, as you know, earlier this year, where he was there and uh, demonstrating his prowess behind the wheel. He's he's got what it takes, uh, and hopefully we'll see him in the WRC gradually making his way forward in the, in the near future. David, no mistake about it, a huge win for Tanak. It gives him a, a twenty point lead with two events to go the one thing that really impressed me though was the fact that he went and, and took all five points in the power stage I mean just, just capping off a, a brilliant rally for him last weekend Talk about rubbing it in, eh? just uh, winning the event and then just going and, and, and destroying everybody on the power stage. Made it look so easy and, and uh, everybody was saying this new rear wing that they had to put on the car for a clarification purpose was going to take some of the speed out of that car. But uh, with, with Tanak winning and, and Meek, uh, Chris Meek did really well on, on the opening day. He didn't fare quite so well on the Saturday, but on Friday, Chris Meek in the same car was leading the event and uh, it was a strong performance for the for the two of them in the Toyotas. Mm. But perhaps not quite as strong a performance for Yari Matti Latvala in that third Toyota because, you know, <laughs> there's never a good time to, to crash out of a rally, of course there's not, but at this time of the season for Latvala, there seems to be a little bit of pressure on him as well and, and rumours about will he still be with that team for 2020. That that was a bad one for Yari Matti. It was a bad one for Yari Matti and it just it possibly even brought home to some of the daft spectators there just how dangerous these cars can be when, when they have that kind of accident. Very unfortunate for Yari Matti to park it in a tree, but uh, the spectators that were there got away uh, with, with one that uh, otherwise uh, could have had very different consequences. David, that, that, that kind of leads me quite nicely to the next question because we had a couple of stages cancelled with the weather and external factors and what have you, but I just want to get your perspective from the role of a marshal in the decision-making process when it comes to calling a stage off or, or, or stopping it midway through. Just, just talk us through the procedure because, you know, nobody wants to see events being cancelled, stages being cancelled, but when people are standing in the outside of corners, it, it, it's difficult. It is, absolutely. And obviously you, you can see that I did pay attention to the briefing notes for this particular section. Um, yeah, the, the role of the marshal, the marshal has uh, has the power to stop the stage. That is the ultimate veto. Uh, the marshal will try and uh, not negotiate, but try and, and, and speak to the people as they arrive on, on the scene and uh, point, at the, uh, point at the error of their ways where they're standing. And uh, 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 the marshal's greatest ally are, are the other spectators who are behaving. Uh, if marshal explains to those people who are behaving that if these guys don't behave, then there's going to be no rally and you've got up at four o'clock in the morning to drag yourself to this forest and you're not going to see anything, then sometimes that works quite well. But the marshal has no real power other than to call in the safety officer and the safety officer will come through and suggest to the people that they move or the stage will be cancelled. And if they don't move, the stage is cancelled. Safety officer in this case, Michel Mouton, 
former Audi Works driver in the fearsome Group B cars. She knows her way around the stage. If she turns up and tells you to move, you move. But there's guys who've been spectating since God was a child in this position and they want to stand in that spot because they've stood there all these years. Why should they have to move? And it's a, it's a very difficult one to, to try and sort. And as, as, soon as, as long as people realise that the marshal does have the power to stop the stage, then they really need to do what they're told. No, absolutely. And David, it's an interesting one when you talk about the, the marshal's greatest strength being the spectators around them and you know, around the, the kind of the, the individual or individuals who are perhaps not playing ball. But is it is that process of cancelling a stage how you know, is is it an easy a quick decision, should I say, or is it one where it can you know, is it's very much an absolute last resort? You know, just talk us through the kind of time scales of how that, that kind of decision's made. It's a situation where if the marshal, with their experience and training, believes that there are people standing in an incorrect place that may come to harm. And we know in Scotland, not so many years ago, a spectator who was standing in the right place was killed by a competing car. So standing in the wrong place is definitely not on. And it's, it's, it's a difficult one. The marshal needs to be awake, needs to be trained, and needs to be uh, liaising with these people as they arrive and, and suggesting where they should go, trying to resolve a situation where people have set up camp, they've got their chairs out, they've, they've got everything all sorted, they're ready to have their spectating period, and then try and move them is, is, is a much more difficult job to do. So the marshal, it's not a case of the marshal coming along and going, oi, you, move. It, it, it's talking to them as, as friends and, and, and fellow rally enthusiasts in the build-up to the cars actually arriving. And some of the marshals... Uh, you know, they sign on as marshals, but they've not, maybe not got the training and the, and the skills. And, and Motorsport UK is very keen at the moment and is driving training for marshals. Uh, we were at a training session in Melrose just last month where we were looking at the marshalling requirements for the forthcoming Jim Clark and Mull rallies. Mull rally this weekend. There's a ton of tarmac rallying, so the, the requirements for marshals in, in that circumstance is, is even more onerous than being in a forest. David, that, that leads us quite nicely to round up with the, the Mull Rally. Um, just kind of talk us through how important it is to, to have that event um, back on the rally scene. The, the Mull Rally was the, the, the first uh, closed road tarmac rally in the UK uh, when it used to be very difficult to do that. It required an individual act of parliament. Uh, the event was run as what we call a road rally long, long time ago. It was actually organised by a, a club from Lancashire who, uh, one of their guys, Brian Molyneux, who unfortunately is no longer with us, he was on holiday in the area and thought, oh, this would be a great place to have a rally. And it started that that, that off. And as far as Mull is concerned, this is a, a, a dead week in Mull's tourism calendar. And now that the rally is there, the island is full. There's people camping. You've seen what the weather's doing out there. There's people having to camp for this event because every bed on the island has got somebody in it, if not more than one person in it. So it's just a massive event for the island. The islanders in general, most of them love it because it brings money to the island. It brings excitement to the island. It brings the island into the forefront of, of the news. And, yeah, it's a fabulous event. And, and because it's that island, because it's easy to close the roads and people like the idea of the rally, then it's just a brilliant event to run. Great stuff, David. Thanks very much, as always, for your time here on the show.
Not at all. We'll do it again next week. That's rally expert David Talley there speaking to us on pole position. Okay, it's been a great year in the SMRC and the season finished in style at Knock Hill last weekend with lots of excitement along the way. I'm delighted to say that joining us on pole position to recap the action is SMRC chairman Sandy Denham who joins us now. Sandy, that was just another brilliant weekend of racing. Well, thanks very much. Good evening and uh, very kind of you to invite me to uh, say a few words and share some SMRC uh, information and details and how who we are and what we are and what we're doing and it was it was fantastic the last meeting was tremendous we were fighting uh rather monsoon like conditions but we're we're relatively accustomed to that now um but it is a bit of a fallacy that it always rains at Knockhill. i think they get a little bit of unfair criticism uh on the basis that people think it rains there all the time it it, it doesn't if, if i'm to be honest with you but it does provide a challenge but we we have the skill set and I would like to congratulate everybody who took part in how they uh, conducted themselves in such difficult situations. Sandy, how would you sum up the season from your perspective as chairman of the organisation? Um, it's been a good year for us. Uh, it's been a difficult year. We've had many challenging aspects of the club uh, and the business side of the club to look at. We've put a lot of change and effort into how we, how we run the club and what we're doing, and we're beginning to see the uh, the fruits of that hard labour beginning to, to to show. You know, we've got a, a 15% increase in our uh, competitor levels this year, which is tremendous. We're one of the few clubs in the country to have a, achieved an increase of any sort. Uh, our membership has risen by about 15%. We're up, we're approaching 300 now. Uh, for a little club like ours in a small country, it's a very, very very healthy position, but one we intend to grow even further. And one of the big success stories from this year has been the introduction of the Citroen C1 Cup. Sandy, how did that all first come about? Well, I, I, I sit on the Motorsport Council at Motorsport UK and represent Scotland. And we were discussing, it was a rallying discussion that we were having around the table, about, there was about 35 of us there, and we were looking to try and discuss how we could get a, an entry-level thing in rallying. And it, it, I listened to Alan Gow, who, who's a friend of mine and who's the head of the, the British Touring Cars. And Alan had raced a Citroen C1 in the 24-hour at Rockingham. And during the lunch break, I was talking to him about it. And when I flew home that night, I thought, this Citroen C1 thing could be something for us. So we got in touch with the C1 club. We came to an arrangement with them within about 48 hours. Uh, not to have endurance uh, racing, but to have, uh, you know, um, 10, two 10-lap races uh, with a view to building on to endurance as we go forward. We built a car, we bought a car, we built a car during the touring car weekend on site in front of the, all the spectators that were there, about 15,000 people. And uh, it was designed to give an entry level from a cost point of £6,500 uh, to, to do a six-event six season. And... We've grown to, I think, 90, 18, 19 cars. Um, it's been absolutely fantastic. Uh, you know, it represents a large part of our, of our championship uh, size now. And, you know, we're delighted with the thing. But the big thing for me was the fact that 11 of the cars that raced at the first event had an X on the back. It meant they were new to the sport. And that's the key critical bit. That really is key critical. The work with Edinburgh College, the West Coast College, I've, I've been at a meeting with Rory Bryant today, our development manager with the Edinburgh College, 
and they're looking to expand their efforts into four or five cars. So there's going to be growth, and we, we hope to have an endurance race next year. So it's just been fantastic. And the great thing about the C1 Cup as well is that it's just such a good entry point for people to make their first steps in motorsport as well. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, I'm sure everybody's aspiration is that, you know, they want to be, you know, they want to be in the next Formula One grid one day. Of course they do. But I think a lot of people do understand that that's very difficult to attain. But a lot of people want to have a saloon car racing career or a GT career. Uh, You know, look at the number of people that compete in in the current BTCC uh, who've raced in Scotland. Aidan Moffat, uh, the young lad Smiley. It just goes on and on. We've been putting people through minis and fiestas and whatever. Uh, to get them into touring cars, it's fantastic. You know, we up here, we're very lucky. We are a feeder formula and a training ground for the future. And, you know, we wish that we could get more people in so that we could get more people forward. And it must give you a, a tremendous sense of pride, Sandy, when you, you, you think of some of the names that you rhymed off there, um, some of the big talents we've had in Scottish motorsport that, that they've came to the SMRC and, and they've, they've um, took and taken those first steps in motorsport and gone on to, to have successful careers. Yeah, and you know something, and not just the SMRC, but if you look at Scotland as an entity, um, we're one of five countries in the whole of the world that have had a world champion on two wheels, three wheels, and four wheels. One of five countries in the world. It's amazing. Yeah. But when you, when you look at what, 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 who we have produced, and the number of people who've gone on to great things. From the small nation we are, with the small resources that we have, I think we punch well above our weight. But we have to continue to push in for the future. This must continue. We can't give up on the process. Hmm. Sandy, tell us a little bit about the, the history of the SMRC. How was the, the club first founded? The club was first founded in 1956 under the guise of the Border Motor Racing Club. And the activities of racing were taking place at, at Charter Hall, where, of course, Jim Clark started his career, and, uh, and, and Winfield Aerodrome nearby. It sort of metamorphosed into the Scottish Motor Racing Club in the mid-60s, uh, with the 1963, I think I'm accurate in saying, and then, obviously, with the, the, the finish of Charter Hall in 64. And I, I was at the last ever meeting at Charter Hall, and that's what started me uh, becoming passionate about this wonderful sport. And then on to Ingleston, and then Ingleston and Knock Hill, and then with the demise of Ingleston, with all our activities being held at uh, at Scotland's premier motorsport venue, Knock Hill. So, Sandy, if, if someone was thinking about perhaps getting behind the wheel in any of the championships in the SMRC, how would they go about it? Well, it, it's not as difficult as it seems. And we're here to help everybody, of course. Um, the first thing to do is to, to go onto the SMRC's website, and there is a section there for Get Involved. And it's, it's headed up as Get Involved. Uh, and it explains how you can be a competitor, uh, an official, you know, a volunteer, a marshal, whatever, whatever role you might like to play. And uh, if you get onto that, then every opportunity we would take to help you through Rory Bryant and the good offices of everybody. You know, every championship has a, a driver's representative. So we can put you, if you had an inkling that you wanted to go into Formula Ford, we then let you speak to the current uh, representative Neil Broom who races himself and most of the people who are helping are either racing in the category that championship or have been in it or are a champion or a past champion from another formula so they're very very um, they're very understanding of the needs of the newcomer because they've recently been one themselves 
So what kind of roles are available for people who maybe don't want to go into racing but would like to help out somehow at the SMRC? Well, as I say, if you go onto the smrc.co.uk website into the Get Involved section, we, we're very keen to, 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 to offer what we have as a volunteer force. And everybody thinks that just involves the marshals. Now, they're key critical to the whole process of racing and in rallying, as I was listening to your, uh, to your last section. What, what we need is more people all the time when we have people in place and you go through training and you're instructed and you do modules with the Motorsport UK to gain qualifications. But there's also scrutineering, which is the technical examination of the car to make sure it's uh, uh, worthy to go on circuit and whatever. We're always looking to get people into that. We are keen to promote any part of the business that we have within the club to allow people to participate. If anybody wants to, please, if you think you just want to come along and help in any way, shape or form, please get in touch with us. We do not and have not got enough people. Sandy, tell us a little bit. And about as it. obviously we develop the sport even further, then we'll need more people. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and Sandy, tell us a little bit about your role as chairman. What, what kind of things are you working on throughout the year to, to help the club keep ticking over? We currently, we sort of devolve, we have a main board, which I chair, and it's like any structured business board. And we have, and everybody's a volunteer other than Rory Bryant, our, our business development manager, and Steve Burns, our um, uh, senior clerk of the course, who they, they kind of organise everything. But they have an executive committee where they meet on a monthly basis and they discuss the, the championships and the evolving aspects that we're working on. You know, they've been very busy lately on working on our new esports championship, which I'm delighted to say we're the first club in the country with an esports championship. And when I say the country, I mean the United Kingdom, uh, which uh, the big thing will be the semi-final at Knock Hill on the 2nd of November, which will be judged by Robert Reid, the World uh, Rally Navigator champion, and Graham Carroll, an ex-Scottish Formula Ford SMRC champion, who's now a Red Bull driver. Mm, So Rory develops these concepts and ideas. The bigger ticket, uh, you know, other events, future ideas, Mm. driving the club forward in a commercial aspect is dealt with with myself and Rory Bryant and Hugh McKeague, our our president and the patron of Ecuria Cost, who used to run the meetings at Ingleston uh, up to the the early 90s. So there's a, it probably takes up two or three days a week, Andy, to be honest, but, you know, Hugh and I are retired now and we're quite happy to do it. We do it because we're passionate about the sport. We're passionate about the club that we've been members for 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 over 40 years. Mm. And we want to ensure that there is a future. Sandy, one of the the real interesting parts of the SMRC that I'd be keen to get your thoughts on, you mentioned it there, is um, the introduction of the the eSports series because that is a a fantastic opportunity for someone to go from virtual racing to reality and get a a seat in announcing in the the Legends Championship. Could you talk us a little bit about how that idea came about? It came about, you know, we've been very conscious since Rory's arrival to look at innovative and uh, different ideas that we can make to, in a nice way, modernise what we do and what we bring to the marketplace. And, you know, Rory and I worked together in his previous role at SMS, which is a, a Sports Scotland uh, Motorsport UK and Scottish Autocycle Union project. And it had been talked about in there for the academy. And when Rory joined us, this was one of the things that we felt there was a a huge need for, and it would be a very strong promotional activity for the club 
and would take us to a bigger market. And as you rightly say, take a, a virtual reality racer into actual reality. And we're delighted that we'll have somebody soon. And our final will be at our dinner, uh, our annual awards dinner in Glasgow in the Radisson Blue on the 23rd of November, where the actual final will take place on stage in front of probably 350 people. And Sandy, tell us a little bit about some of the, the partners of the SMRC and, and people and groups who are helping the, the club drive forward. Well, it's very important that we have commercial partnerships. And I think we've been, I was going to say we've probably been quite lucky, but I, I, I think you make your own luck in many respects in, in, in all ways. And, you know, we have a number of people who've supported us in a commercial or a, a corporate partnership, uh, a bit of patronage, our minis have been supported for a long, long time now by Tommy Drillon from Aberdeen. Uh, Tommy's very successful in the oil industry, passionate petrol head, has a wonderful collection of cars, used to race in the uh, Porsche Carrera GB Cup on the touring car package, and now races in historics all over Europe and America and the world, actually. He'll probably be in Japan as we speak now. Uh, he's got a Porsche 962 Leighton House car and an ex-Keke Rosberg Formula One Williams from 82. We have a long-term relationship with the Oklahoma Tires, which goes back 15 years with Mark Evans there and his team. They do a wonderful job for us in association with Ronnie and Daisy uh, at Wheels Around, who are the on-site tire providers. We're delighted to have a strong relationship with Sandy Burgess, the chief executive of the Scottish Motor Trade Association. And, and Sandy's very helpful to us, not just in supporting the Citroen Cup as its main partner, but he, he gives us a lot of wise counsel and advice during the year and I used to work in the motor industry for 40 odd years so him and I have a bit of synergy um, we have a good close friend Jonathan Gilbert with the Edinburgh Watch Company uh, who's a lovely partner lovely guy uh, ECU Masters and our latest addition and for goodness sake you know a small club like us with Sir Tommy Farmer backing us to his Farmer Auto Care brand I think that's just great really is yeah Sandy, when you, you look back at 2019 as a whole, what would you say has been your highlight from this season? Uh, I think the highlight was actually getting home on Sunday night. <laughs> 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 um, in fact, I was just saying to Rory this afternoon, Rory and I have been up at the Edinburgh College organising a whole load of new initiatives for next season. And uh, as we came out, it was pouring the rain. And I, I said to him, I said, you know, it was like this on Sunday, and here we are on Thursday, and it's still it's still the same. But uh, the highlight for me has been to see a regeneration and a growth within our business again in the club. You know, all forms of clubs are finding times difficult. There's no shadow doubt about that. And that's whether you're a Crown Green bowling club, a skittle club, a golf club. You know, let's be honest, golf clubs are not doing as well as they were 10 years ago. And we have all the dilemmas and difficulties. And by making it more commercial, by making it more friendly and by making it more integrated with the community that we're in. And we are a big community, but we're also a little community. You know, I would say we're the best little racing club in, in, in Great Britain. But we have to work very hard in our marketplace. We have to understand our marketplace, and we have to deliver value for money. But I think people are beginning to see that we're on the right track. There's a lot of positivity. We're getting a lot of good feedback. And I think over the next two or three years, uh, we'll have a lot more to bring to the party and I think it'll all be quite exciting. Great stuff, Sandy. Thanks very much for joining us here on the show. No, it's been a great pleasure. And again, thank you very much for the invitation. Keep up the good work. Thanks very much. And that's Sandy Denham there speaking to us on Rock Sport Radio. He's the chairman of the SMRC. 
Now let's find out more from the Scottish scene by getting the super-fast Scots roundup with Glenn Alcock. Hello everybody who's listening and uh, thanks for having me back on. So yeah, good to hear um, Sandy talking there. I think I just have to echo everything that he said. So uh, Rory Bryant's done an absolutely fantastic job as the business development manager in his first year with the SMRC. And uh, you can see that things are definitely heading in the right direction. And uh, the weekend, it was good to see Andy up, giving some support in what was some pretty terrible conditions. But it was an exciting uh, weekend for Scottish motor racing. So, yeah, a lot of championships basically had to be decided. So there was a few that had been wrapped up. So Jordan Gronkowski's had a really, really dominant year in Scottish Formula Ford. So that one was already done. And he ended up having two victories again, which was good to see. Uh, Ollie Mortimer had uh, also won in the Mini Cooper S and Lorne Murray with the inaugural Fiesta ST Challenge. But some of the other championships had to be decided. So Robbie Dalgleish won the Celtic Speed Mini Cooper Cup. Um, we had Bruce Mitchell winning the Classic Sports and Saloons. The Scottish Fiesta Championship was won by Jack Davidson and the legends Dave Newell. Scottish Saloons uh, was Keith Cowie and the uh, Section C1 Cup that I'm involved in you know, went down to the wire between Ryan Smith and Finlay Brunton, who are teammates racing for Minimax Motorsports, so it was quite exciting just to see how that was going to pan out. But it was Finlay who ultimately took the, the honours, but there's been nothing really between those guys all season it's been very very closely fought um, and I think next year Ryan will be eager to come back and try and challenge Finlay to, to win the championship um, for me it was a busy weekend again so I was out in the, the C1 Cup but also taking part in the Classics um, and an XR2 in the Martin Ramsey Trophy just to honour our, our friend uh, Martin who sadly passed away at the end of August and it was interesting to get out in another car probably not the best conditions to try and you know, go out and adapt to a car you'd never really been in before because it was uh, really torrential rain at times. So um, quite challenging for me, but managed to keep it on track and came away with a podium finish in the Martin Ramsey Trophy. So that was my, my first time on the podium. So got a wee spray and a champagne and stuff, which was good. But yeah, a, a very demanding um, weekend and challenging conditions, but great, great fun. I mean, it's been an absolutely fantastic year for me uh, in my first season of, of racing. Absolutely, Glenn. And one of the things as well um, that that I picked up from from being at the, the event last weekend was um, just how how good the atmosphere was in the paddock. You know, and it not not just necessarily people, yeah. you know, spectators coming in, but among the drivers and the teams as well. There was just, there was just a really really nice atmosphere around the place, and um, you know, some some great action on track as well, of course. Yeah, I think uh, because there's so many championships still to be decided, even given the fact that the weather was quite poor and it's always a risk when you're racing in Scotland, especially in October. But um, there was a lot of uh, excitement around the place. There was a lot of spectators as well. My wife commented on it saying that, you know, given the fact that, again, the weather was so bad, she she was really impressed by the amount of people that were out, you know, cheering everybody on. And that obviously kind of spurs us on as well when you're out in the car and you see that there's quite a few people in the, um, you know, watching it with hairpin and stuff like that, um, which is obviously good for overtaking. But yeah, um, really, it was a great end to the season. I mean, I'm already thinking about next year, like straight away. West College Scotland have stripped the car down, they're working on it now. You know, we're already thinking about the future and, you know, Sandy's been talking about the growth of the SMRC this year. And I think that's the thing. Once you get the bug, you just can't, you know, it's all you can think about. You just want to keep going. You want to keep improving. Um, it's it's very, very addictive, but it is really, really great fun. And I think that that's what everyone thinks, whether you're a driver, whether you're involved, you know, as a marshal, if you're a volunteer, if you're scrutineering, whatever. Everybody's just got a, a passion for motorsport. And as Sandy said, you know, Scotland's got this great motorsport history. 
um, and it's something that we want to continue on into the future um, because we've got something really, really special in this little country, I think. And Glenn, on that subject about you wanting to get back out into the car, you know, you've got yep. a long wait now until next season, so just talk us through that process, what you'll be doing over the winter to make sure you're ready to go again next year. Yeah, so the, the car sustained quite a bit of damage, mine, obviously, because we had the roll, although I've got to say it was uh, in the last round there in race one, uh, Kyle Grant had a, an even bigger roll, which unfortunately I was right behind when it happened. Um, but the, the best thing that came out of that, the same with me, was he was completely fine, you know, maybe be a little bit tender the next day, but the safety was uh, was really, really good. So, um, yeah, the, our car took quite a bit of damage early on, and then we had some contact in the last race. So the college, luckily it's all on one side. The car's like two-faced, you know, it's got a bit of one side that's perfect, and then the other side is not so perfect. Um, so we're going to do a bit of work on that, just kind of getting it back into shape and strip the car down, work on the engine a little bit as well, and just make sure everything nice and serviced and um, cleaned up ready for next year for me I need to start thinking about you know can I get more sponsorship and maybe a little bit of financial support for next season so I'm looking at that just now and then it'll be trying to keep myself you know as sharp as I can be so I'll be trying to get up to Knock Hill uh, and maybe get some track days and stuff but that'll probably be the start of the um, the year to, to start thinking about that maybe about project cars in the meantime esports is a big thing so uh, you can you can get quite a lot from doing the simulated stuff so yeah I'll be working on that and yeah just uh, trying to look at some of the the data and things that I've got from this year so you can look at your timesheets you can look at your sectors you can start to try and figure out you know where you can make some improvements and for me it was always struggling a little bit in normal direction and I think uh, last time out you know we had a good qualifying session qualified 11th out of 17 in the first race and uh, we finished um, in 10th we were up to seventh by the first corner going down at the Duffus dip in the second race, but then unfortunately ran wide at McIntyre's and lost a few places. So uh, we're definitely starting to improve in normal direction, but that will be where I'll be focusing on to try and uh, get a little bit extra speed for next year. But yeah, like I'm saying, already excited about it. Um, I think the team are too. Um, they've been sending me pictures today from the college and I'm starting to work on the car. You know, it's a, a proper little racing car now. It's had its uh, first full season and it's seen the action that it's seen. You do develop a week in a bond, I think, with the car when you've been through things like that. It's quite strange just seeing it getting trailed away, knowing that it might be a wee while uh, before I see it again. But I'm going to go to the college, meet up with the students and the lecturers, um, and we'll, we'll start to think about next year. And we, we could be working alongside another driver who might be working out of the uh, West College Scotland at the Paisley campus as well. So that's going to mean I'll almost have a teammate. To be honest, I consider my teammate pretty much anyway, but it means the pair of us can work together to try and drive each other forward. Um, so I think for the West College Scotland Motorsport Academy, it's definitely growing and it's looking you know, very, very positive for the future. And they seem quite happy with me as a driver as well, which is good. Um, I think we're, you know, we're all improving and, and learning together. But it is very, very exciting. You know, If you're out there and you've been interested in motorsport and you've been on maybe the, the sort of uh, Outscots of it in the past or coming along and spectating if it's something that you know you, you think you'd be interested in get an experience get a track day see if you you've you've got a feel for it and then try and get involved do your arts test and uh, get yourself on the grid because we need more cars out there as well um, the, the Citroen C1 Cup's one of the bigger ones you know we've had up to 18 cars this season and apparently next year I think it's going to be even bigger uh, but some of the other championships could do with a little bit of support um, and there's, there's plenty you know to race depending on uh, what what you fancy. Glenn, uh, you, know, you mentioned the, the, the work that um, everyone behind the scenes at West College Scotland's Motorsport Academy are doing, um, preparing the yeah. car. Obviously, this is a, a series where you're not really allowed to make 
too many modifications to the C1 um, because the beauty of it yep. is it's a fantastic entry point and jump into the car and away you go. But what can you do to prepare it and turn it from an ordinary car into a race car? And what I kind of mean by that is, a, is in terms of lowering the car, things like that, can you do anything with, um, you know, anything on that front just to get a, a competitive advantage? I mean, there's there's very little you can do. I think that's the whole point of the championship is the fact it's a budget championship, so you don't want the ability to change lots of parts and you know rack up at huge expenses, uh, and they want the racing to be nice and close. So basically, you buy, you get your Citroen C1. It's got to be between a certain kind of age as well, you know, and it's obviously it's a three-door one, it's not a five-door. Uh, and then you buy your, your C1 racing kit, basically, that fits the roll cage in, strip, you strip it out. Um, and after that, you're kind of restricted in what you can do. You can you put the suspension on it, the racing suspension, but, you know, you're, you're not allowed to change things in the engine, really, the, the gearbox or anything like that. So um, tyre pressure seemed to be key for, um, you know, giving you the, the sort of best setup. Um, and that's, that's what, makes you probably learn a little bit about the actual racecraft, I suppose, as opposed to the setup and things like that. So I think that's why we've seen such a close grid this year. I mean, I qualified 11th in the first race, and that was a second off pole position. Um, so, you know, 11 cars separated by a second is, you know, very, very tight. Um, and I expect it will be much the same next year. And that's what you want, don't you? You want, in a single-make series, you don't want anyone to have really a car advantage over you. There's probably little gains you can get here and there. And obviously, West College Scotland are learning um, how to do this in the same way that, that we are. Um, so... Um, we, ju- we just need to wait and see what, what the future holds, but uh, definitely we've started going from the back of the grid. We jumped right to the forward, you know, right to the front in uh, the second round, and now we're kind of round about in the middle. Um, and I, I would hope that we'd be able to make a, a step forward next season as well. And Glenn, when you look back over what you've achieved here in 2019, how do you feel? Yeah, I feel really proud of what we've achieved, you know. I mean, I've been unfortunate that I had the two DNFs and in both races they were in the first race, or both rounds they were in the first race, which basically means you're starting from the back in the second race. So we lost quite a few points, but we weren't really going to be challenging, you know, for anything like the championship or anything in our first season. So we were really concentrating on getting the most experience that we could and trying to just improve our performance. And I think we've done that as the season's gone on. We've had some great battles. Sometimes you're battling for, you know, 15th place, and you do like a great overtake and you come out the car absolutely buzzing like it was for a race win. Um, and I think that's the thing you've got to remember that you're in it. You know, it's not Formula One. You're in it to enjoy your motor racing. And I think everybody's done that. You know, it can be nerve wracking at times. Um, you know, it does. Um, it can be all encompassing for your life because you think about it and you, you want to do your best. Um, but definitely uh, I've absolutely loved every minute of, every minute of it. And uh, next year, you know, like I say, I, I just can't wait to get back out on the track and see what we can do and hopefully keep improving. Great stuff, Glenn. Thanks very much for your time here on the show. Fantastic. Thank you. Cheers. That's the Super Fast Scots roundup there with Glenn Alcock. And Adam, that's um, it's incredible to, to to think that's just about us for another week. Um, crazy how how fast um, the, the show's going. I tell you, I don't think a, one hour's long enough because we haven't even had a a chance to talk about MotoGP and Mark Marquez winning the championship last weekend. Give give us a, a kind of overview of of what went on. 
Yeah, well, it's just a joy to watch Mark Marquez on that Honda because he's really doing things that no human... He's defying human capabilities at the moment, the way he's riding that Honda bike. And he had a great battle with Fabio Quartararo, who I've got no doubt is going to certainly challenge Marquez in the future for world championships. But that was Marquez's eighth world championship, his sixth in the premier class. He's got the most Premier Class titles by a 26-year-old. He's the youngest six-time Premier Class champion at 26 years, 231 days. Youngest rider to take eight World Championships. And now he's one of only three riders to have taken six or more Premier Class World Championships. Of course, Valentino Rossi's on seven. Agostini's on eight. And, of course, Valentino Rossi's not had much luck in the Yamaha this season. And you can tell Rossi's getting a bit frustrated that all of a sudden this young Mark Marquez has came in in 2013 and has dominated the sport apart from one year in 2015 when Lorenzo won the World Championship so it's been incredible to watch Marquez and it's scary, the scary thing is at 26 years old what he could go on to achieve, Hmm. he could double that tally. And Adam just very briefly do you you think Marquez needs to move on to cement his place as one of the all time greats of course he's a fantastic writer that I'm not suggesting for any second that he's not but does he he need to, to move from Honda? Well, the, the, a lot of riders struggle in the Honda, but for some reason Marquez is able to make the most of it and it does suit his riding style. Will we have to move to another manufacturer to be considered the greatest of all time? I think he will at some stage, and I'm sure he will. No, absolutely all right, Adam. Thanks very much for that. And, and unfortunately, that's all we've got time for on Pole Position this week. But we'll be back from 8 o'clock next Thursday night to do it all again. My thanks to Adam, to our guests, and to you for joining us as well. Stay tuned for The Rock Zone, coming up next on Rock Sport Radio. Love music. Live sport. Pole Position with Andy Alston and Adam Todd on Rock Sport Radio.